The Money Show. Other people's money. And as is tradition, before we talk about their money and what they think about money and how they treat money, a little bit of a catch-up with our guests. They're generally people who are very well-known household names in South Africa. That was the purpose. It would broaden the spectrum of people we could talk to on The Money Show. So good, great pleasure to welcome Richard Callan, the Associate Professor of Public Law at UCT. Um, before we get into you and your money, Richard Callan, let's talk about that other guy and his money and the trouble that his money got him into uh, before Christmas and, of course, you were on a panel that was set to investigate whether the president had a case to answer. You were thought to be conflicted. You withdrew. The report came out. It was a catastrophe of uh, of legal uh, of legal analysis, um, and it was massively discredited. Where do we find ourselves now? Where does the president find himself in the aftermath of a, a more convincing victory at Nasrec this time round than five years ago? Well, thank you, Bruce, and thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you for jolting me out of my sort of post-holiday <laughs> uh, reverie uh, and bringing back some uh, challenging uh, recollections and moments from the tail end of last year, which I think was a, a really interesting political point in history, in a way, because uh, between the 1st of December and the 21st of December, three weeks, there was an extraordinary turnaround in the already long and, in some respects, tortuous uh, political career of one Cyril Ramaphosa, our president. He was a couple of hours away from resigning. I think you and I might have spoken uh, about the subject either that day or the next day, I can't remember. There was so much media attention on the Palapala report, as you say, Bruce, and the flaws of that report, which I think became apparent the more that people looked at it. And indeed, the more the president looked at it over that 24, 36-hour period, the more I think he realized that it would be unwise uh, and not, I think, helpful for the constitutional project for him to fall on his sword on such kind of shaky and flawed basis. And so he decided to fight on. And he then won, I think, showing more steel and backbone than perhaps he's shown for a long time in his political career, perhaps as long as the ago as the 80s. He really fought back hard. And, and that was really interesting to observe. And I think by then, most South Africans who follow these things would probably uh, begun to lose the plot or moved into holiday mode. But come the end of the ANC conference, as you say, Bruce, he, he emerged from that, not only victorious, but I think with a, a stronger position in terms of power. And the question now for this year is, is he willing to seize that moment? Can he see what an opportunity he's created for himself now? And will he use that power in a much more decisive and, if necessary, bold fashion, given the state of crisis of the country? From what you know of the man, what do you think? Unfortunately, what I know of him and the conclusion I reached in, in the book that I wrote last yeah. year, The Presidents, which came out in November, the conclusion, and I, I have to admit, Bruce, I wrestled with it long and hard. I've, I've never struggled to finish a piece of writing as I did the chapter on Ramaphosa. Um, and I struggled because I vacillated between one position, uh, which was that really, in a sense, he, he'd taken on a mission impossible, that if one wanted to be objectively reasonable and fair to him, then the, the headwinds that he was facing from the economy, from the legacy of his uh, predecessor, Jacob Zuma, the broken institutions of state, and then, of course, COVID, 
not to mention his rotten party and the drag factor of the factionalism and the division and the crooks within the ANC. If you reasonably assess all of that, it's it's not just mitigation, it really explains everything. But then on the other hand, here's a guy who I think uh, 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 bangs his head on a, a kind of at least strategic leadership ceiling. He can't escape that. I don't think he has a vision for his presidency. I think he always wanted to be president, but when he became president, uh, and many people told us this, Mabel Sidoli, my co-author and myself, told us that actually he won power, but then found himself singularly ill-prepared to be president in, in in numerous respects, which we set out in the in the chapter of that book. So that's very peculiar, and it may explain some of the weaknesses of his presidency so far. Yeah, uh, I still haven't got you to commit to whether or not he's able to seize the day. I, I, and I ask this from the point, right. from 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 yeah. the point of view that you know we've all I think faced bullies in our time, and some of us are more prone to conflict than others. Some people will punch the bully in the face on the first day, um, and will then realise that we have some personal power, and then be a little bit more assertive into the future. Some people hold back and they wait mm-hmm. until the bully has poked them in the eye, poked them in the nose, and insulted their mother and every member of their family until they act. And eventually when they do act, they realize they have power. And I wonder if Sir Ramaphosa has been treated so badly, not only by, by Jacob Zuma and his acolytes, but from within his own cabinet by people who um, should at least have a modicum of loyalty to his government, if not to him as an individual, and who've expressed nothing but disdain for him and his approach to politics. I put into that, and of course, Zanat Lamini Zuma, I put into that, Lindy Wessasulu and others, that he actually goes, you know what, stuff you guys. Boom! And hits back. Yay or nay? Well, it, I, that, that is why, and I, I will answer the question in a second, that is why, Bruce, the, everyone is rightly saying that the first test of whether he is a different sort of leader now that he's won a second term as ANC president and accumulated some more power, having won these victories, political victories, is um, his cabinet reshuffle. That's the first measure to look at. And of course, being Ramaphosa, he's not doing it quickly. He's teasing us along the road. He'll do it in his own good time. Um, which frankly is a mistake. He should get on with it and, yeah. and set his stall out quickly and firmly and, and show that a new era started. So again, already we're in that territory. And that leads me to answer your question. And I prevaricated because I kind of went down memory lane in terms of writing that chapter and trying to finish it. And where I ended up was concluding that here's a guy who actually does have that, that leadership weakness. He will not confront difficult decisions and, and resolve them. He will always navigate them and try and work around them. And I don't think he has that, uh, that extra lung that you need for the highest echelon of leadership, especially in politics. I don't think he's got that ruthlessness. And I don't think he is going to use his power as he should. But I would love to be proved wrong. Yeah, we all would love for that to be wrong. Now, talk to me, where were you born? Were you born into a, a, born. a gentleman's country estate with 400 years <laughs> of legacy and, 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 and trust yeah. funds? Where, where, what, what's the background? If only. Uh, I wasn't born with such a silver spoon in my mouth, Bruce. No, I was born in, in South London uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in 1964, which seems a long time ago, in a different sort of era. South, uh, South, South London is vast. Whereabouts in South London? Well, that's that's an interesting question from the point of view of your subject here of money and class, because I was born in a, at a 
well, I wasn't born there, but I lived and grew up in a house that was in the middle of four kind of areas. And one was called Greenwich, one by, which is now a very trendy area. It used to be very run down, but hippie and funky and arty in the 60s and 70s. Blackheath, which is kind of old money and posh. Uh, Lewisham, which was just drab and, and extremely uh, mediocre, certainly in my day. It's, it's improved a bit since then. And then Deptford which is very much working class, <laughs> although it's now also yuppified a little bit. And I ended up active in the in the Lewisham Deptford Labour Party. So I got to know that part. Anyway, we we the family house was in the middle of all four, funny enough. But you don't speak legitimately... like somebody from the east of London. You don't sp- you don't have that southeast. You don't well, it's, it's southeast, mm. but you don't have an east end it, it, sort of even yeah. even an east oh, London don't. accent. No, I, I, I accept that. And, and I don't know why that is, but I think my, my parents were teachers. And although they were from the north of England, they didn't, they didn't have strong northern accents. They spoke well and they brought me up to speak well. Uh, and I ended up at what turned out to be in the end a, a, a private school, a pretty third rate one. Then now it's emerged much strongly. But it, but, uh, and, and I suppose one's a product of one's class in that sense. And so, yes, I, I, I accept I've got, uh, a relatively refined British accent, or English accent, <laughs> and strangely, after twenty-nine years in this country, Bruce, and you haven't sh- shaken it. Years, yeah. It doesn't see. I don't seem to have developed a strong South African accent, do I? Uh, <laughs> I think that's also. Uh, I don't probably think the case. I, I wouldn't even put strong in front of that. Uh, <laughs> but that's fine. It it it, just, it defines you. It distinguishes you. It makes you different to everybody else. We'll talk about money, Richard Cannon, well, because you've grown up in this. Yeah. Really, nowadays, quite a, a gentrified and emerging part of London. It's a beautiful part of London. It's very open, lots of green. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice part of London. Uh, we'll talk about that and the upbringing and money in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. Richard Callan, the political analyst, is our guest this evening. Grew up in the east of London in the United Kingdom uh, in between areas like Blackheath and Greenwich and Deptford and Lewisham, where people speak very differently to where he speaks. Mum and dad were teachers. He got he went to a decent school in the east of London um, and came to South Africa nearly 30 years ago. Hasn't shaken his accent, but he does understand South Africa's political landscape better than most. Um, it was a comfortable upbringing, I guess, a safe upbringing. 1960s, swinging 60s, London, um, before the 70s, where things went quite sour for the United Kingdom for, for a period of time. And that will be your earliest memories, I'm sure, Richard. Yes, I don't have any recollection of the swinging 60s. Uh, I don't think my parents were particularly um, swingy, swing, the swinging types. They were quite, I mean, they had very uh, interesting intellectual pursuits and minds, but they were, they were kind of small C conservative in their, some of their outlooks. They were, they were socially liberal, certainly, but they were, they were from working class backgrounds. My father was a policeman in Liverpool. My mother's father was a, an engineer, but he was the first member of his family to ever go to university. And so they had that kind of working class background. And I think that informed their attitude to money. You know, they were very risk averse. They were very prudent. Uh, they were very careful and they didn't go into debt and they, they ran a tight ship, but they also had good careers. They were teachers and then they became school inspectors. So I think by the late seventies, when I was a teenager or late teenager, they, they had decent salaries. And yes, we had a, we had a comfortable, safe, uh, financially safe lifestyle, no doubt. What is when? What sort of basis did that give you from which to work in your own view when it when it came to managing your own money later on? 
Well, it's such an interesting question. That's why I was happy to accept your invitation to come on this show, Bruce, because I think one can learn a lot about people from their attitude to money. It's often quite revealing about not just their character, but their upbringing. You know, as a teenager, you tend to rebel against your parents. And I was an only child. And one of the things I would rebel against was my father's um, prudential approach to, to money. So, you know, when he took me shoe shopping, he would complain that my unerring ability to pick the most expensive <laughs> pair of shoes in the shop that I, I wanted, winkle pickers generally, leather, you know, with a good brand. Uh, and he would fight against that. We would have quite vicious arguments about about that. And no doubt I was flexing some sort of teenage muscle against him. And I, and I think it made me, for a period of time when I went to university, made me a little irresponsible with money. It was kind of a rejection of what I probably saw as my uh, parents' kind of, you know, nerdish, um, unnecessarily um, prudential approach. And, and for a while, I think I was quite immature about that. Uh, and it took me a little bit, a few years later, before I, I grew up and understand, began to understand that, that being being kind of uh, laissez-faire and flippant about money was was not a particularly smart attitude. Was there a moment? Was there a moment as a student where you were doing your third student job that day where you went, actually, this is quite hard? No, because uh, in the early 80s in Britain, bizarrely, there was a, it was very easy to get credit. And if you were at a decent university, the banks were, were not exactly throwing money at you, but they were throwing... Um, they were throwing credit at you. And you could, for example, uh, I'll share a little secret I've never certainly shared in public before, which is you can, you could at that point go into a bank, open a bank account, because they were desperate to get your business apparently as, as a, you know, potential graduate from a decent university. Um, and you could open a bank account and they'd give you a hundred pounds overdraft at that point. Okay. And then you could go down the road to the next bank and carry on down the high street until you had, 400 pounds worth of overdraft, which is quite a lot of money in the early 80s. You could have a lot of fun with that. Um, and of course, uh, and, and then eventually, of course, those debts would catch up with you. And so down the line, you had to find a way to pay them back. And I, I guess there was a time years after I'd left university when I was a lawyer, I was a barrister at the bar in London, where, yeah, I had to pay those debts off. And so I was then working to pay debts off rather than to, you know, enjoy the benefits of burning money and and that that's i guess during that period the penny uh, forgive the pun dropped yeah, yeah ab- absolutely um, and have you imparted these lessons on your kids and have they been open to the lessons that you have learned because so often we take yeah. our own learnings and then try to impose those on our kids and they look at us as if we are stuck in an era a bygone era um that uh, no longer exists and i'm afraid the lessons of money are universal and eternal. Yes, uh, my my oldest son has has got a naturally um, not so much prudent, but but he's he's un, he's up not he's not fussy and he's he's not he's a minimalist and he doesn't he's not excessive by nature uh, and he's he's modest in taste. Um, of course, he likes the odd branded piece of. Uh, clothing or whatever, like most young people, but he, but he really does easily live within his means and it's, it's within his character. My, my daughter, uh, India Jane, however, is very much like I was at the same age, um, in, in so many respects that I certainly won't share with you or bore you <laughs> with, but, but on, on the question of, of money, yes, she will always pick out the most expensive item available. Um, she, uh, will, will easily spend beyond her means, but I think, uh, somehow she has a work ethic 
Um, and I think, therefore, she is always recognizing the need to, to be independent. And, of course, credit is not available to young people as it was uh, in the way I described to me um, 50 or 40 years ago. Um, and so I think it's, 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 you really do have to earn the money before you can spend it these days in general. Do you regret the change of life? Uh, the, the, the London barrister would have been perhaps a, a far wealthier person than the South African academic? <laughs> That's a great question, Bruce. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, if I'd carried on um, with my career path as a barrister and, you know, and, and all other things being equal, carried on doing reasonably well, then, yes, I would, I would be far wealthier money-wise than I am now. Absolutely no doubt about that. And when I came to South Africa and then started working for Idasa, it was a very modest NGO salary. Um, and uh, although I'm very privileged and happy to have a job at the University of Cape Town, academics' basic salary is not particularly high, certainly compared with the private sector and the public sector these days. Um, and But... but the answer to your question is I have zero regret. I've, I've had so much um, intellectually and socially stimulating uh, times since I arrived in South Africa. I haven't for one second regretted uh, anything, let alone the money. Uh, I've had a far richer uh, experience by, by coming to any other country, but especially this one. I mean, I literally have not had a boring week. Uh, since uh, February 94 when I arrived. And you'll understand why. It's a, a richly interesting and country, and South Africans are wonderful people. Uh, and I'm a proud South African these days since 2005, so it feels very much home. Um, so, no, I have absolutely no regret about about that at all. I sometimes miss my career as a barrister. and wish I could practice law again, but I'm, not for financial reasons. Richard Callant. Thanks for chatting this evening. Associate Professor of Public Law at UCT is also a prolific analyst on South Africa's political environment and a regular commentator on the stations on South African politics, the environment, and helps us understand the levels of uh, crisis and opportunity, frankly, often uh, that exist within our political sphere. Richard Callan this evening on The Money Show.